Please turn to Titus chapter 3. Um, you'll find it on page 1738, 1738 in the Brown Bible. And we're going to read it as we go through. So rather than read it up front, we'll do as we did last week and just work through the, ch- the chapter. But I want to set a bit of a framework through which we can sort of read it and understand it and get to grips with what Paul's saying to us. Um, I tried to make it very clear to you how relevant I feel this book is to us because the church on Crete, the island of Crete, was at basically the same stage in its history as Grace London is. We were planted um, in September 2014, we began, and we're pretty much at the same stage as this new church was that Paul's writing to. He's writing to the leader, Titus. And so everything that he says to them is the, because it's such a short letter, the kind of distilled wisdom of an aging missionary, his top priorities for a new church. And so it's got massive relevance to us here as Grace London in the center of this great capital, even if our context has got so many differences. Now, I want you to think about Paul, his heart, his mind, what he prioritized as we go into this chapter. And I think that the thing we need to grasp about him above all is that he's a missiologist, a missionary, Um, It was so core to his identity. From the moment that he was saved by Jesus, when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, God called him to be a missionary to the nations, to the Gentiles. And it was part of his very core of his identity that his passion then, he just bled it constantly, was the extension, the growth of the kingdom of God in the church, in the nations. And so he's got this dual emphasis in his mind and ministry. One is to do with the health of the churches that he plants, and the other is to do with their effectiveness then in continuing the mission. And so he's always balancing these two dual emphases in his letters. His health mattered to him. He wasn't just concerned with sort of pragmatic success. He wanted churches that in his own language, in 1 Corinthians 3, would be able to go through the fire and come out the other end as precious metals and jewels rather than be consumed, burned up. And whether he meant through suffering or more particularly through a kind of final assessment by God of his church. He wanted churches that were so substantial, solid and beautiful that Christ would be pleased with what's been built. But he wasn't just concerned with them being healthy, which is a massive concern for us here and a constant challenge. He also wanted them to be effective. He wanted them because he never felt that the church should be kind of impotent or dud or ineffective in what it's here to do, which is to be a transforming influence on the society around it. So as we sort of work through this letter already, we've come across some of the passions that shape this this dual emphasis in his mind. He opened the letter speaking about his desire for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which are cause of godliness. This is his whole life passion, is for the sake of Christ, God's people, the church. He's given instructions for setting leaders in the church, for dealing with false teaching in the church. And the whole of the last chapter that we looked at was about our lifestyles, how we're meant to be godly, and how that, in his own language, adorns the doctrine of Christ our Savior. So if the truth is the jewel... Our lives and what our churches look like are kind of the setting that makes the gospel look extraordinary and beautiful and relevant and and life-changing. That's kind of where he's coming from. 
And so it's through that lens of Paul the missionary that I want us to read this last chapter. I want us to think about how his instructions are kind of the top priorities for a missionary mind when he's talking to a church. And so four things really jump out to me that it has to do with missional living, to do with a missional message, missional priorities, and a missional movement. And those are the heads that we're going to work through as we we figure out what he's saying to us in Titus chapter 3. Missional living, message, priorities, and movement. Let's start then in verse 1 to do with missional living. I just want you to wrestle with this question as we get into this. What is the priority for a Christian in their life and lifestyle? What does it look like to be salt and light in a city like London or an island like Crete as this was written to How do we live as missionaries, and how in particular do we live radical lives in in the heart of a a city with massively contradicting agendas and worldviews and everything? And also, maybe to put a bit more of a point on the question, how do you do that when when so much of of what's around us is in opposition to, to Christ and his gospel? Certainly, Paul experienced constant buffeting and resistance to everything that he taught and stood for. And I just want you to understand that the Christian priority for living is never to be in protest against the culture around us. It's not to be, never to be violent or to advance through violence. I know Christians through history have sought to use violence at various points, but they were never, it was never a natural outworking of the faith that they profess. It was always a broken version of Christianity. It's never through rebellion against the culture we're in, in terms of, you know, overthrow or certainly not withdrawal even. You know, we think about cultures like the Amish and guys who live in caravans and in, in, in withdrawing from society. That was never the Christian approach, and nor was it to kind of work for takeover of the culture we're in, as though we're meant to sort of m- rule um, and, and force people to, to recognize Jesus as Lord. None of these, these ways of thinking are true and right for the Christian perspective. So we're asking, what's, what's, what does Paul want of us as Christians? How do we live in, in, a, in a society which doesn't believe the thing, same things we believe? And actually, the answer, as it comes out right at the beginning of this chapter, is a little bit dull. It seems a little bit ineffectual and a little bit bland because if I could sum it up in a word, he, he, all he tells us as Christians here is, is to be great citizens. He, he specifies a couple of things. Let's just read the first two verses. He says, Remind them, the Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It kind of boils it down to two things that it has to do with us adopting a posture of submission. And of us having great relationships with the people around us. This idea of us living in submission comes through the New Testament consistently. It has to do with our posture towards the government that we, that we find ourselves under. Your boss at work, just picture your boss's face. Paul's word to you is very, very clear and very direct. That you're meant to be living in submission to that person or those people. You think about your lecturers in college. You're actually meant to adopt a posture of submission to them. You may dislike them. You might find that you conflict with them. But he says, no, remind them to be submissive to all authorities. 
And then suddenly you think, like, wouldn't we rather be a movement like we've seen the civil rights movements like the ANC and the Black Panthers? Wouldn't we rather be a movement that somehow, like, you know, that acts in rebellion or resistance to the culture around us in aggression? And actually the Christian way is, is quite distinct and quite different. He says, no, submit to all these authorities. Your parents. How was your relationship like with your parents? He says, adopt a position of submission to all authorities. And then he goes on and says, and we're meant to have amazing relationship with all these people as well. You know, he doesn't sort of qualify. He doesn't say if they're nice to you. He doesn't say if they are kind and generous and if you already get along with them and you love their personalities. He just says in a very blanket way, speak evil of no one. Well, what about that person? They're a little bit, a bit annoying or a bit, a bit unkind or whatever. He says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people, everyone. And I'm just taken aback when I read this stuff by just how seemingly ineffectual this is. How can the church do what it's meant to do in society when we're meant to adopt this posture? But actually, if you remember, this teaching goes all the way back to the way Jesus taught and lived. He taught a kind of combination of, on the one hand, radical um, submission and a willingness to, to, to bow to the culture you're around in terms of your posture and your demeanor. He said it in terms of like, his teaching to go the extra mile, which was you know, when a Roman soldier wants you to carry their bags for a mile, he says, carry them two miles. But also a profound sort of subversion of that culture at the same time through the very message that we preach, which is a message that Jesus is Lord, or as Tim was reminding me this week, that Jesus is prime minister, or Jesus is president. They were borrowing the language of the emperor and applying it to Jesus and saying, when Christians talk about Jesus, we, te- we tell everyone that he is the supreme authority in the universe. And somehow Christians are meant to pull together these two seemingly contradictory realities. And you might be thinking, well, that is one of the most useless strategies I've ever heard of in my life. But actually, you think about it. It's rooted in a profound confidence that God is in control of all of history. That he puts you in a place with that particular boss or those parents or that government and actually, for, for Paul writing this stuff to the, the Christians in Crete, you've got to realize how much they must have stood out from the ordinary citizens. Because Paul's quoted one, a Cretan talking about Cretans, who said that they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Cretans had a very low view of themselves. So when the Christians come along and start embodying what Christianity looks like, they must have looked radically and profoundly different to everyone around them. Now... When we think about this in our context, I think you've got to realize just how amazingly encouraging this is. It means that you don't have to be a missionary to be a missionary. I mean, you don't have to be somebody who you know, buys all your clothes from secondhand stores, sells all your goods, and moves to a foreign land with a one-way ticket in order to be a missionary. Because actually, you can be a missionary through amazingly ordinary ways of living in the society in which you're rooted. It means you don't have to be radical to be radical. That whereas we have an image of what radical Christian living looks like, and it's, so, it's been built up through centuries of Christian heroes and people who've withdrawn from society or have denied themselves and done all kinds of amazing things. And I don't want to take away from what they've done, 
But when Paul's talking to ordinary Christians like you and me, his advice is so much more normal. That radical Christian living is just having an extraordinary sense of loving responsibility to the society that you're in. Now, what, what does that look like for us? I think we've got to take this on board, and, and here's a few tips. It means, first of all, you've got to check your attitudes. I think it's, it's massively trendy and current in our modern age that's been born out of the rebellion of the mid-20th century to be hugely critical of the powers that be, whether that's the teenage criticism of your parents, whether that's um, the, the gossip in the office against your, your bosses, or whether it's just the constant slating of the governments that actually God's put over us. Now, I know this is incredibly difficult to adopt the right attitudes that Paul's talking about here, especially when we disagree heart and soul with the things that are happening around us. And I, I just want to express massive sympathy for you if you're American. <laughs> There is something in this that Paul is saying, you've got to check your attitudes. We can't just mirror the culture in which we live, which is one of constant rebellion and aggression against the authorities that that are around us. We've got to check our attitudes. We've got to check our performance. What do I mean? I mean in the sense that you're all called to massively different things. I love the fact that even in our young church, there is huge diversity in terms of our our sort of callings and passions from people who work with uh, the disadvantaged and children to those who are working with some people who regard themselves as the elite in society and everything in between. But the same message goes out to every one of you that we're called to be here submissive and in wonderful relationship, which means I think that you should be the best employees on your floor, the best students in your, in your, in your lecture hall, I think it means check your attitudes, check your performance, but also check your relationships. Friends, are you at peace with everyone around you? Do you have long-standing feuds with people that you're working with or a kind of competitive, backbiting rivalry with someone? Do you have broken relationships in your family, especially if your family aren't Christian? I think you've got to really think about this. Paul wants us to check these relationships because he says, friends, we've got we've to be like Christ. He called us to be peacemakers, didn't he? To be mending relationships everywhere we go, even in seemingly impossible scenarios where you think, well, they just don't understand how difficult they are for me. He says, you've got to be the bigger person. And somehow all of this is Paul's massively passionate missionary mind boiled down to just ordinary living. What does it look like for you to embody this stuff in day-to-day life? Missional living. This is radical in Paul's mind. Let's move on. Missional message. When we think about the message of the Christian faith, it is obviously the heart of everything that we stand for and believe. And on the one hand, it's hugely attractive I think we've had friends who, when we told them the gospel, we told them about Jesus, told them what we believe, they said, I wish, I wish I could believe that that were true, because it sounds so beautifully attractive. But in the, on the other hand, there are things about the Christian message which are deeply offensive and which people actually react against and find, find horrible and even hateful. And that's kind of where we begin when, we, when Paul starts talking about the gospel here in these next verses. 
It tells us that you are much worse than you ever realized. And that if you are to think about the problems that are wrong in the world today, you cannot rule yourself out from that diagnosis. Your heart, your sin, it says you are the problem. And it also says, much more depressingly, the Bible says you actually can't do a single thing about it. And that's how Paul starts when he talks about the message, this missional message. Look at verse 3. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I think that this actually is in massive contradiction to what most people think about their own lives and think about the society at large. Most people these days think that, that we, are, we are essentially good, but we're kind of slightly plagued by wrong institutions or wrong ideas, and that we need to fix all of that. I was reading this amazing book um, by a guy called Mark Sayers. He's a kind of Christian pastor and culture someone who analyzes the cultures in which we live in the West. And he was talking about this basic Western view that that the world is good and is improving. He says, I lean back in my chair as my my coffee sits in front of me, adorned with latte art, a now internationally recognized symbol operating as a kind of universally approved stamp of quality. The specials written on a chalkboard herald an inventive mashup of international dishes and guilt-nullifying organic ingredients. All around me, the cafe is designed to within an inch of its life, including the regulation hints of Scandinavian modernism, accent of raw industrialism, plus a few playful nods to 80s street art. He describes the corkboard with opportunities for fun and self-improvement, invitation to improve your mind and your body with Bikram yoga, and to join the fight against climate change. And he talks about how in the post-recession world in which we live, he says that it's now moved into more of a soft power of more handcrafted, artisanal, more organic, more designed, more curated, and definitely more expensive. And then he writes this, this soft power is lubricated by technology and the promise of consumerism. Through the mythologies of advertising media, the internet, and the instructive example of celebrity, a vast mental world is daily constructed in our minds, painting the possibility of a godless utopia, a heaven on earth, in which an individual life is infused with pleasure, peace, and possibility is achievable this side of death. He describes it as a secularist, in other words, a godless coup, accomplished not by a frontal assault upon theology. So the aim is not to rip down faith and religion and Christianity, but he says by a practical, functional atheism that offers the fruit of shalom, you know, the peace, the well-being, the lifestyle you want, without the tree of biblical faith that bore it. We want all of the justice and the beauty and their peace in our lives and in society, but without the God who spoke these things into being. And across that aim, that desire, that pursuit that we see all around us in society right now, you have what Paul's telling us here about the human heart, that we are full of a tendency towards self-destruction, he says. He describes us as being... Slaves to our passions and foolish. 
you know, that there are things you, you just cannot stop doing because your desires run away with you. And that that's true of everyone, that we're all slaves, he says, to our passions. That's where we were without Christ. He talks about an attitude of rebellion against authority. He says, passing, you know, disobedient, led astray, and passing our days in malice and envy. And he talks about relational degradation, how, yeah, I think when you look around at society at large, there, is, there are pockets of love, and this is the grace of God. But if we think about it with a broad brush, what's wrong with society? He says it's, it's because of malice and envy, and that we're hated by others and hating one another. And you think, well, is this a realistic description of the problems in the world at large? And I think you have to reflect deeply and just consider for a moment that when you strip away the veneer of the good life that we see praised in a city like London, just strip that away for a moment and just sort of ignore the superficial elements of beautiful eating and fun socializing and all that kind of stuff and start digging down into what's going on in the hearts of people all around us. We see massive relational breakdown. It's a distressing picture of divorce and of, of people who are full of insecurities and the breakdown of relationships, of people using each other sexually and then ditching each other the next moment, of a will, unwillingness to commit in unconditional love. And that's before we've even got to the headlines of, of the world at large and the ways that we are ripping each other apart. And I don't think it helps when we bury our heads and, and deny the basic human problem, which is what the Bible just talks of as a, a kind of a total depravity. We're not as bad as we could be by the grace of God, but we are thoroughly bad without God's grace. That's what Paul's describing. And I know it, it's not a nice thing to say. I know it's not a popular thing to say, and I know that not many people are saying it. But I also believe if we're to have any hope for transformation in the world at large, or in this city, or even just in your own family, you have to begin with a true and right diagnosis of the problem. And it's on the back of that that then Paul talks about this missional message. We've got to hope, right, that if, if God can do something about it, then he has to start undoing the very things I've been describing. He's got to turn self-destruction into, and slavery into freedom and joy. Your personal experience of freedom and joy in day-to-day life. He needs to turn our rebellion against each other and the authorities around us into happy and joyful submission. He needs to turn this relational degradation and breakdown into beautiful community and love. The very thing which I think the vast majority of people are hungering for and yearning for in their heart of hearts. And how on earth does he do that? Can we just pick up again from verse 4? He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
There's so much in there, and I'm not going to try and explain all of that to you, because I think it would take a long time. But I want to only make one, one point in a few ways, just on the back of this. The big idea to me that Paul is saying is the hope of the world is this, that it is not you. Yes, the problem is in us, but the solution is not. Which is why at a very fundamental level, I I question the urge towards transforming the world through self-transformation and through the fight for social justice. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm saying that they cannot do it because ultimately the solution cannot rest in you or in me. And friends, when that penny really drops, one side of it you might think is a little bit depressing. Well, doesn't that mean that we're totally powerless and despairing? And then you suddenly look at it the other way and you think, that is the biggest relief I've ever realize in my entire life I couldn't change my life anyway never mind the world I struggled to live a godly life from one day to the next never mind lead a godly family or um, see the community and the neighborhood change or see the city change with all of its massively complex issues and problems and infighting and competition And Paul just takes away all of the pressure from us and says it was never the solution that you had to do it in the first place. And he tells us instead it's all God. In a few ways. He tells us that firstly it's his mercy. He says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. None of you were good enough, he says. But according to to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. His mercy, his kindness. He says it's his power as well. He talks about Christ pouring on us richly his Holy Spirit. The power of God for a changed life and a changed heart is never a self-generated power. It's not through more learning. It's not through more effort. It's through a, a posture of receiving God's Holy Spirit to come and give you strength to change and to, to grow. And he says it's through his acceptance. All of the emphasis in these verses is on God and his action and nothing is on you and your action. You see how he closed it off. He talks about so that being justified by his grace we can become heirs to the hope of eternal life. And you realize the journey through which Paul's led us in these verses. It started in verse 3 by talking about us as slaves. We were slaves to our passions. And then God acts, and God acts again, and God keeps acting, and he changes you so that you become an heir. You were a slave, a person with no rights, no power, no real freedom, And you became an heir. Somebody who in God's eyes, and this is what the Bible says about you, is someone who inherits alongside Jesus Christ. If you become a believer in Jesus, he doesn't make you a believer just to sit in a position of 
total subservience to him, though we do honor him as Lord, he also calls us co-heirs with Christ. So you were in the lowest place, and then God puts you in the highest place and invests in you dignity, a sense of acceptance, a sense of belonging in his family, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, but because he has lavished his love upon you freely. This is Paul's missional message. And I I want to underline for you, friends, how different this is from every other message that we will encounter in the world at large. Because it cannot feed our pride and our self-worship. The more we change, we can't claim the credit for change. The more that we see society change, we can't claim the credit for being smart and clever and all the rest of it. But instead, it drives us to our knees in gratitude before a loving God who is kind enough not to push us to one side, though he could have done so, but to transform us and to mend us and to heal us, to take away your fears and your anxieties and your depression, to take away your self-destruction and your morbidity, to take away your anger and unforgiveness and bitterness and turn it into a Christ-like love towards others and towards the God who made you. It's all him. That's the message that we believe. Let's move on. Missional living, missional message, missional priorities. Paul's great effort is to make the church a church which is efficiently purposeful towards the mission towards making Christ famous in the earth. And a couple of things that jump out in these next few verses which sort of attach themselves to these missional priorities. One of them is that we're called to good works. He says in verse 8, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. That's a total fallacy that Christians aren't interested in good works. He has already told us that we were not saved by works done by us in righteousness. So we know that nothing of what we do can go into our bank account as credit to persuade God that we're really decent people. It's not how he understands it. But what he does say is that we're now, as those who are believers, we're called to devote ourselves, which means a total heart and soul engagement. This is what you're here for, friends, with good works. Jesus talked about it in the passage about salt and light. He says that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Which gives us a clue as to what the whole purpose is of living a good and righteous life in this world. It's not about, it's not, it is done for God, but it's not to impress God. It's rather, in some ways, the, the very opposite. That God is impressing the world through us. He's demonstrating who he is in his character and his beauty and his magnificence and his kindness through his people on earth, his hands and his feet. And that's why Jesus says that people may glorify your Father who is in heaven when they see you, Grace London. You, how you live, the good things that you do with your time and your talents and your money. It's what Paul says here when he says these things are excellent and profitable for people. I think he has in mind a burning passion for the island of Crete. These Cretans who are destroying themselves and each other 
And he thinks, if the church goes about its job of mending society through every little act of kindness and love that Christians find themselves called to, it will be excellent and profitable for all people. The world will sit up and take note. My conviction on these issues is that in some senses I don't think it's the calling of the church as an institution to be running all kinds of social programs and, and, and so on to serve the society it's in. I think rather it's the church organic. What I mean is that I know as a pastor and many churches would do this that they would want to make it the job of the church leadership and the paid employees to run all kinds of programs to change the church, to change the city and, and so on. But I rather think that when we look at the New Testament, the emphasis is put not on your church, but on you as a disciple of Jesus. And that you don't need to wait for me to tell you what to do, to give you instruction or guidance or permission even. But that when I look around at your beautiful faces, I see people with massively different passions and energy and calling and ways in which they want to serve the city that we're in. Some of it's through your work. Some of it's outside of your work. Some of it's through very low-key expressions of kindness to individuals and neighbors and so on. Some of you are talented to run organizations and do something on a much larger scale. I think that my job, much like Titus' job here, is to turn around and put the... Put the onus on you. You must not wait for me to tell you what to do. The onus is on you. And my job is to tell you to insist on these things, as it says here, and tell you to devote yourselves to good works. So your question coming out of this is, well, if we're going to start getting missional priorities about how we use our lives, how we spend our lives, you say, is my life bringing glory to God? Will people look at me and see somebody who is expressing the character and the, and the love of God in the city I live? Am I devoted to good works so that my, my salvation, yes, I've been saved by Jesus, but can anybody tell when they look at you? Can they see a life that is, is being spent as Christ spent his own life for those who need love, who need his mercy? What could I do that will display Jesus with the gifts that I have? An accurate assessment of your gifts, with the opportunities you have, the doors that are in front of you, and with the resources that he's given you? These are the questions we need to ask. So when we think about missional priorities, one of them is to devote ourselves to good works. But here's another one. He also wants the church to start sweeping aside and moving aside all the obstacles that stop it from being good at doing mission in the city. He says from verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person, person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, at first reading of these verses, they seem to jar with what we've been looking at in this chapter. As though Paul suddenly just goes off on a rant about these people in church who are really difficult and awkward and we just need to like ignore them after a while. 
I want to help you to see how this is sewn in to the, the calling and the passion Paul has to see the church effective in missions. Because it is Christians' tendency, it can be the tendency of certain Christians, to get lost in ideas and discussions and in-house matters to the point where we've suddenly forgotten. One day we wake up and realize that we've forgotten that there's a world outside that is, in Christ's own language, going to hell without him. We can become interested, as Paul says here, in foolish controversies. And in our desire to be a loving community, we sometimes find ourselves being nicer than God. Because we're not willing to knock things on the head or to cut things out of our church life. Now I don't think Paul was against in any way churches discussing what we believe. Even allowing disagreement and debate so that we can work through to a clearer idea of who we are as God's community on this earth. I don't think Paul has a problem with that. I certainly don't feel I have a problem with that. But I'm also deeply conscious that it wouldn't be that hard for us as a church to forget that we're here for London. The more that we find that there's loads to talk about, what do we believe on all kinds of issues under the sun, the less that we're focused on the saving gospel and the urgent call to see people repent and surrender to Jesus, and the more that we're just kind of painting around the edges of what's relevant. And friends, if we want, I think Paul's logic is this, if we want a missional focus, we're going to have to be a church that is clear, not only about what's important, but about what's unimportant, about what doesn't matter, and start removing the harmful influences. Now, I think that we're relatively clear of this right now because we're a young church. We're, you know, these things tend to grow with time as churches get older and more gnarly and, and complicated. But even now, I'm really conscious that we're having discussions about theology and people are coming to me with all kinds of th- issues and questions. I'm not trying to put an end to that. But I'm just saying that, friends, there comes a point at which we can be so focused on in-house issues that we've forgotten why we're here. I know in my last church... There was a guy, I mean, I've come across this numerous times, but there was a guy who just had a few ideas that he was passionate about that became points of division with the church leadership. He wanted us to change our minds and our teaching on certain issues. And so he engaged us in long debate via email, and then face-to-face, and then via email again, and then face-to-face again, calling all the church leaders into a room to come and meet with him and talk about what he cared about. And we came to a point where we realized, man, half of my waking hours are engaged with thinking about ways of progressing this discussion with this man. And we just came to a point where we just stopped. And we just asked him to leave the church. And it seemed unkind, but it was one of the best decisions we made in a long time. (laughs) Because suddenly you're like, man, I'm back on the ball. I know what we are here to do. We're here to build a beautiful church that brings glory to Jesus and sees rescues people from darkness. That's Paul's passion here. That's why he talks sometimes in this harsh language. He says after warning them once and then twice, have nothing to do with them because they're warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. 
then don't really care about Christ and the gospel. These are missional priorities. It's learning how to order what we are about so that the first things must come first and everything else is, is secondary, tertiary, or even just pushed into the background. Here's, let's move on to our final thing. Missional movement. We've talked about missional living, missional message, missional priorities, and now missional movement. I want to read you the last verses of the chapter. Paul says this, When I send Artemis or Tuchicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This letter closes with some instructions that are quite easy to miss. You kind of miss the relevance and the importance and the priority of them. What's going on here? Paul seems to me to be exercising his role, his calling as an apostle, to start moving the troops around, as it were, or moving the pieces on the chessboard. You can imagine him as a great field marshal in the kingdom of God. And he sees what's going on in the world at large and in the Roman Empire as a kind of great battlefield. And he starts thinking about who are his chief generals. And he starts wanting to move people around according to the needs of the moment. So that they are always moving faster than the enemy. Always able to keep the mission moving forward. And that's what he's doing here. He has instructions for Artemis and Tuchicus and for Titus himself, and for Zenus and Apollos. And I think it's easy for us to skip over this and not realize, man, just how difficult this must have been to live under the instructions of an apostle like Paul, who never seemed to sit still. Itchy, always on the move, always wanting to further the kingdom. You couldn't rest for a moment, because he's going to give you some instruction and tell you, to, okay, you've been there too long, you need to move. And for these guys, that meant... Massive upheaval. Probably for some of them it meant that they couldn't marry. Much as they might have wanted to. But it was just impractical to have a wife and children to bring with you. It meant that every time they arrived in a new place, they had to make new friends. And you know how wearisome that can be. We experienced it a little bit in London because of the massive turnover of the population. But how tiring it can be when you've devoted hours and days to certain people and your relationships have gone deep only for you or them to move on just as quickly. It meant for them that they had to just find new living arrangements every time they moved from place to place. And there was no such thing as you know Airbnb or TripAdvisor or whatever you look at to help you find the best places. They had to just walk in blind into cities and just hope that something showed up or else they were literally sleeping rough. It meant for them that they had to engage in long journeys. We feel sorry for ourselves when we have to take an overnight flight. But these guys had to travel for months to get from place to place. And all that time might have felt like dead time to them because they weren't doing much along the route. It felt like, man, these guys as well, they were massively at risk. They could easily die along the way or be robbed and beaten to death or die in a storm as Paul often found himself shipwrecked. He seems to be an unlucky guy when he lists all the things that happened to him on his journeys. You think, well, it's because God never actually promised him absolute protection through all this that he wouldn't suffer. So when Paul is given these instructions, you have to realize this was a massive call on these men. 
These are not easy things to do. They suddenly had to say goodbye to friends who they might never see again. They didn't have Facebook. They couldn't keep in touch. They didn't have WhatsApp. They had to literally just say goodbye and cut off communication most of the time. Make new friends, move to new places. And it serves to highlight, again, how for Paul he was willing to call these men to do this stuff. Without embarrassment, it seems. Without a blush in his cheek or a lump in his throat. Why? Because for him, the mission of Jesus is worth it. So what about us? When you think about the life choices you make, where you're living, why you're living there, where you're moving to next, are they shaped above everything else by the same beating heart that Paul has for the mission of Jesus Christ? A lot of you are at a point now this summer where, you know, it's the natural end to cycles in London. It's the summertime and then September is a new cycle. And so you're making massive decisions about where you'll work and what city you'll be in and even what country you'll be in. It seems to me that what Paul has, his heart is relevant to us right now. How do we make decisions about jobs? How do we make decisions about where we're going to live? And shouldn't a concern for the mission of Jesus Christ come first? I think far too often we we flip things on their head and we move from place to place according to what opportunities open or what job opens or where our friends are or where our family might be. And it seems to me that to have the mind like Paul had, I'm not saying those things are irrelevant or unimportant or not part of your decision, but it seems to me the highest priority for a Christian must always be Where can I extend the mission of God in this earth? And as you guys are at a point of decision right now, some of you, I think even this summer we're losing about a quarter of our church. I could weep and cry if it were not for the fact that you guys are part of the kingdom and I know you're going to be effective elsewhere, but we're still going to be so sad to say goodbye to so many of you. We as a church want to be involved in church planting in the future. God willing, by his grace, as he raises up leaders and people with a passion for it. And this this sacrifice that Paul's talking about here is going to have to be something we embrace. I think we feel it in a tiny way, even when your life groups get too big and you have to multiply into two. And you're like, I don't get to see them every week like I used to. Or imagine what it's going to be like when some of you up and leave to other parts of London or other parts of the world and maybe take a few folk with you and we just get email updates every now and then but we, we, we lay down our comforts for the sake of the gospel, don't we? Knowing that God gives us greater joy. We want a church plant. We're part of a, a movement of churches which is involved in planting churches, other churches. We're going to the advanced conference in June and part of what I'm hoping we'll all receive from being there is a passion for the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world through our family of churches. You're you're no doubt going to hear news of some of the church plants that have happened this year. There's been a church plant in Madagascar, a church plant in Thailand, and people, and there's one that's happening in Istanbul, which you heard about last year, and people are uprooting their whole lives to go and spend them for people they've never met. And maybe you're going to be swept up into some of that. 
some of you. Maybe you'll just be here at Grace London for a season and then God's going to put his finger on you and you'll be like, no, not me. And be like, yes, you're going. It's your job. You need to go there and, and, and do my work and you're going to find great joy in it. But also there's going to be suffering and, and all kinds of stuff in the mix. And for some of you, it's not that. It's not that you're necessarily being pushed out or called elsewhere. It's the very opposite. That the sacrifice is, is actually in staying. And that we're a church plant and we need, we need people to engage fully with what it means to reach the lost here in this city and to help lead this church and to help serve one another in the body and to disciple new believers as they are part of our, our gathering. And so for you, the call... Is, is rather to engage more fully with who we are as a Grace London in the heart of this city. Whether you stay or whether you go, it's all filtering and pushing through the lens, the grid of the mission of Jesus Christ in this world.